Okay, I apologize. Um, I'm going to start with a goofy story today. Uh, I don't normally start a sermon with a goofy story. Um, it's only goofy if it's true. I hope it's not true. Um, I did a lot of research to try to find out if this story is true. Um, it's presented as true in some places. It's quoted as true in some places. But I sense it's not a, true, uh, a completely true account. It could be a compilation of several different stories put together, or it simply could be an allegory, which this, uh, the allegorical value is the reason I'm telling you this story. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's an unusual story, but it tells us a truth about who we are as human beings and the, and the grave errors we make as human beings. Annie Dillard was an American, is an American, she's still alive, an American author and poet, and it's in her essay entitled An Expedition to the Pole where she tells this story. Now, she herself made an expedition uh, to the polar cap, so she, she knows what she's talking about here. But you'll, you, you'll understand what I'm saying to you once I share a little bit of the story with you. She writes, again, a 19th century expedition to the North Pole. She says, each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two or three year voyage. Okay, right there we already have a problem. 12 days of coal for a projected two to three year voyage. Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200 volume library, a hand organ that played 50 tunes, china place settings, cut glass goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. Okay, you're hoping this is not a true story. <laughs> this is not going to end well. You already know it's not going to end well, right? It's noted later that Inuit Eskimos came across the frozen remains of the expedition, men dressed in their finery, and pulling a lifeboat laden with place settings of sterling silver and some chocolate. You understand why I say I hope this is an allegory and this is not true. Human, I don't think human beings... I know human beings can do incredibly stupid things. I'm just not sure how intelligent men could do something like that. But you understand the allegory, right? It's like men and women who are living for this life totally and completely with no thought for the next. It's like these guys made no sufficient plan for where they were going. They had all of the wrong things. They made all of the wrong decisions. It's just like human beings who trek through this life with no thought for eternity. It's exactly the same. So the allegorical value is, I think, evident. So, is it possible that these guys could be this clueless and to be found dragging a lifeboat full of silver isn't it a perfect picture of human beings setting all their hopes and value 
on stuff they cannot take with them. If it's true, it's tragic. To the uttermost. They died dragging a lifeboat of sterling silver on the polar cap. I mean, let that sink in. So I thought I'd stop and ask you, what are you dragging through life? What are you dragging? What are you pulling around that has no eternal value whatsoever? We all do it. The older you get, the wiser you get. I'm 62. I'm a slow learner sometimes. And I'm still spinning stuff off. I don't need it. It's just baggage, right? It's just baggage. Some of us are walking around with so much baggage, there's no way we could ever really serve Christ Jesus. You know, 100% all out. To truly be a disciple, I've got way too much stuff I'm carrying around. I see it a lot. You guys know that life is often allegorized as a journey. So, are you lean and are you moving toward your destination? You know, there's only one destination for the thinking man or woman. There's only one, you know, viable destination for the thinking man or woman. It's to stand before our Maker. Each one of us in this room will stand before our Maker. It will happen. My question to you is, are you prepared? And are you preparing yourself? And are you making this journey in such a way that will bring glory and honor to the Lord? Some of you have got some stuff in your life that you're dragging around and it's holding you back. And it will have eternal consequences. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, John Piper, my, uh, one of my favorite preachers in the States, an American preacher. He says, life is dangerous. Do you remember why he said life is dangerous? <laughs> because what the Bible says about human life is true. It's a vapor. I looked at some of the other metaphors. These are from the Bible. If you want the text, I'll let you just email me. I'll give them to you. We're a vapor. We're a breeze. We're grass. We're a shadow. We're a breath. We're a phantom. We are here for a moment as compared to eternity. And then we're gone. We're out of here. We're not here to stay. We are here to leave. And the sooner you begin to understand you're not here to stay, the sooner you'll, stop. you'll start you know, shedding some of the junk that you don't need to be carrying around. You'll start to set your priorities in order. I'm walking, I'm trekking through this life, and I will stand before my Creator, Jesus Christ. That's the number one priority for every thinking human being. It's not about getting rich or getting famous or hoarding up things or buying things or, you know, we can have subordinate goals under the Lordship of Jesus, but our preeminent purpose for being here and making this journey is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus. So we're not here to stay. We are here to go. 
And so I'll ask you again, what are you lugging around on your journey through this life that's hindering you toward your ultimate goal? It made me think of the guy in Luke 12. You know the guy in Luke 12, right? He had a bumper crop. What does he do? Anybody remember? What does the guy do? He has, a, he, has, he has this huge crop. What does he do? He decides to build barns, right? So he's going to build many barns and store all his crops. And then he's going to say to himself, let me eat, drink, and be merry, for I have much accumulated wealth. Now, what did God say about that? Anybody remember what God had to say? God said, exactly, God said, you are a fool. It's like those guys dragging a lifeboat full of sterling silver and chocolate over the polar cap. It's insane. Really. And God says to this man, Luke chapter 12, verses 20 to 21. But God said to him, You fool, for this very night your soul is required of you. Who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You guys know what Jesus says to every, every human being, every man or woman. You know what he says. What does he say? Join church and go there often. Is that what Jesus says? Those are good things. <laughs> you should join a church. Don't get me wrong. But what does Jesus say? What's the first thing He says? Follow Me. Right? Follow Me. He doesn't mean in some lukewarm, half-hearted way. He means all the way. You know, you either get all in with Christ or you're not in at all. And so I like to challenge people. You know, don't play a game with God. Get in. Get in. Jesus says, follow Me. He says, come and follow Me. You know what God says in Hebrews 12.1? He says, lay aside every possible encumbrance. Lay it aside. Just like the guys on the polar cap dragging a boat full of silver. They didn't need it. It was valueless. It was valueless where they were headed. It was valueless. It's the same thing. That's true here. God says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Are you running the race? Are you in the race? Are you just dragging a bunch of junk around? That 19th century expedition to the North Pole could not have been more wrong about everything. My point to you is, if Jesus Christ is not the core and the center and the object and the goal of your life, you are wrong about everything. I get it. The world tells you that your priorities ought to be X, Y, Z. I get it. But the world... Yeah, it's under the wrath of God. The world is perishing. The world is, a, is lying. The world doesn't know what's, you know what's up or what's down. God says, follow Me and lay aside every encumbrance. So I'll just ask you, is that true in your life? Is that something you have done and will continue to do? You know what the Proverbs say. 
There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's like these guys dragging uh, sterling silver across the polar cap. It seemed right to them. I have no idea why. But it killed them. It's one of the things that contributed to their ultimate demise. So without Jesus Christ, if you don't hear me say anything else, hear me say this, without Jesus Christ, everything is wrong. What does Jesus say? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and what? Lose his soul. Have you taken care of the soul business? Nothing else much matters if you haven't. The soul business. Have you been reconciled and redeemed by Jesus Christ? So many human beings are dragging around a lot of non-essentials and they're leaving out the true essential and that's Jesus Christ. You know, C.S. Lewis, you guys know who he is. He, he says, life will not work without God. Um, and I'll get to the text in a minute. Life will not work without God. He says, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly or anything else. God has designed the human machine to run on Himself. He is the fuel of the human machine, the human soul. There is no other fuel. There is no other happiness. There is no other peace but God Himself. It does not exist. It is not there. God made you to run on Him. And if you're not running on Him, what does Lewis say? C.S. Lewis says, the machine will caulk. The machine breaks down. It's a charming British word. Caulk. Right? Maybe Renee knows. Do you know this word? Conk out, yeah. Yeah, conk out. How would you define it? Yeah, to, to break. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, God must be your fuel. This is how the human soul was designed for its Creator. So, in John 5, just for by way of review, John 5, Jesus is, was clear, I'm God. He said it five times, at least. Uh, in John 6, last week, the beginning of John 6, we saw Jesus feed ten to 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We saw the disciples have to walk off with a basket so they'll be reminded what? Jesus is always the answer. Jesus is all I need. You know, Philip says, Philip says, hey, it's impossible we have too little. Andrew said, it's impossible we don't have enough. But Jesus was the answer, right? Jesus is always our answer. Jesus is always sufficient. It doesn't matter how difficult the situation looks for us. Jesus Christ is always our answer. So we pick up here in verse 14. The people are talking about... You heard the text read, so I won't read it. You can follow along. Uh, the people are talking about the prophet. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophet that would be like Moses. Ultimately, the Messiah. They're starting to, to ascribe the, the title of Messiah to Jesus Christ. They are seeing His power. And they're pretty jazzed about it. 
Verse 15 tells us they wanted to make Him their King. <laughs> um, one thing you notice in the text here is there's no repentance, there's no confession, there's no cry for mercy, there's no worship, there's no adoration, there's no love flowing to Jesus. They want to make Him King. Why do they want to make Him King? You know, right? Why do they want to make Him King? We heard it read in the text uh, up in uh, verse 26. Because they ate that... It's probably the best bread they ever ate, right? Can you imagine bread fresh from the hand of God? And the best fish they had ever eaten. What's this about? It's about the prosperity gospel. That's what it's about. I never realized until just recently how John 6 utterly refutes the prosperity gospel. It just refutes it. God refuses to be useful. He will not be useful in your life. He's either your Savior or you don't know Him. But He will not be manipulated. He will not be used. Jesus will not let these people use Him again. The sign was for them to see that He is in fact Messiah. Right? That's what the sign is about. But all they're really interested in is eating some more bread and some more fish. Hey, let's make this guy, let's make this guy king. This guy can run the Romans out. This guy can make us happy. This guy can give us all that we've ever wanted. It's the prosperity gospel, right? <laughs> and you're going to see as we go through the text, Jesus is having none of this. He will have none of this. He will not be used. The miracle is for them to worship. That's what the miracle is about. To see Him and to worship Him. Jesus did not come to make bread. He came to be bread. Right? And what's the metaphor here? What's the metaphor for bread? It's your life. You must eat or you will perish. Jesus is the eternal bread, the heavenly bread. You must have Him or you will perish. It's the point. These bling-bling preachers, health, wealth, and prosperity, you know, maybe a few silver place settings. Um... You've heard me say it before. Don't bore me with that. I am not interested. And if you've caught a glimpse of the living God, you're not interested. You can't be distracted with these things that are passing away. They're valueless in the long run. Valueless. There's no value to them in the long run. Jesus Christ, you know the guy, Matthew 13, 44, He found the treasure in the field. That's how you feel. That's how the Christian feels. I give up everything for Him. He's my treasure. He's my joy. He's my ultimate pleasure. I'll give up anything and everything to possess Him. This is the heartbeat of the true Christian. Prosperity gospel? Are you kidding me? Don't bore me with it. I'm not interested. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I don't want a God I can use. I want a God who will save me. Amen? So these people don't love Jesus. They just want to use Him. It's an insult to God every time that prosperity stuff is preached. It's blasphemous. It's an insult to God. 
That you would actually desire His blessings more than you would desire Him. That's what's happening in John 6. That's exactly what's happening in John 6. Satan loves the prosperity gospel because it gets you looking at blessing instead of looking at Christ. You can always tell a counterfeit gospel. It gets you your eyes off of Jesus Christ. It gets you looking on something else. In this case, the, the, the prosperity gospel gets you to looking at the blessings of God instead of God Himself. So, looking here at verses 16 to 21, uh, and I'm going to bring in some of the other gospels because this, this account is mentioned in, in the other gospels as well. The Gospel of Mark and Matthew give us a little more insight. It tells us that Jesus made the disciples go ahead of Him in the boat. Mark and Matthew also tell us that Jesus departed to the mountain to pray. So this raises two questions. Why does Jesus send His men into the storm? Oh, maybe He doesn't know there's going to be a storm. What do you think? Do you think Jesus knows there's going to be a storm? Okay, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you think Jesus doesn't know there's going to be a storm? Oh, he, you know, either He doesn't know or when the storm comes to you. And I'm a pastor. I hear this a lot. The storm comes to the Christian and the Christian is dumbfounded. Why is there, why am I in the middle of a storm? Right? Is it possible, this is our second option here, is it possible that Jesus means to explain to um, yeah, uh, reveal Himself in a brand new way to the disciples? In a, in, a, in, a, in a much more powerful way than they have ever seen before? Do you ever think like this when you're in a storm? Do you ever think a new revelation is coming? Or are you critiquing God for how He's running His universe, particularly your circumstance? Beloved, this is how you, you, you need to think as a Christian. When it gets hot, when it gets hard... You need to think, God's going to teach me something new about Himself. God's coming to me in a brand new way. So is God ignorant of the storm? Or is God planning to blow their hearts up with a new revelation of Himself? Secondly, we see that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. What's He praying about? We have no idea. But if we take our cue from Scripture, He is often praying about His people, right? If we take our cue from John 17, Romans 8, and Luke 22, He's often praying for His people. So Jesus sent His men into the storm. John tells us that the sea was stirred up because of the strong wind. Mark tells us the disciples were straining at the oars for the wind was against them. Matthew tells us the boat was battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. Matthew 14.25 tells us that Jesus came to them in the fourth watch. This would be between 3 and 6 a.m. So these guys have been fighting the wind for a long time, for, for, for hours. They are exhausted, no doubt, likely fearing for their lives. Mark 6.48 says, Seeing them straining, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. So let me ask you this question. Jesus is on the mountain. It's dark. There's a storm. There's no moon. How does He know they're in peril? How does He know? <laughs> this is important. You're supposed to, you should know this. 
How does he know? Well, he's God. He knows all things. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But it goes beyond omniscience. It's not simply that God knows. It's that God has ordained. Okay, this is where much of the modern church has left the biblical God. Jesus sent them into the storm. He did it for a reason. He designed the storm for them. Because He's going to blow up their hearts <laughs> when they see Him coming for them in the midst of this storm, walking on water. He's going to reveal Himself in a brand new way. And the result is going to be pure joy. <laughs> okay? The result will be pure joy. He is God. He is omniscient. And He is sovereign. Brand new joy is coming for these men. As they see Him coming to them on the water, there will be wonder. There will be awe. There will be praise. There will be worship. This is what the storm is always about. Now, if you claim to be a Christian, but you just like to feel sorry for yourself in the storm, you will miss all the wonder, all the awe, all the praise, and all the worship. The storm is designed for you to get a new glimpse of God and to worship. That's what it's designed for. So, Matthew 14.26 tells us the disciples were afraid and they saw Jesus and they thought He was a ghost. Matthew 14.27 Jesus didn't leave them hanging. He said Immediately He said, Take courage. It's Me. Don't be afraid. This, this phrase, take courage, it appears in the New Testament eight times. It's always from the lips of Jesus, right? Take courage. It's what He expects for, from you in the storm. When, when the storm comes to your life. Take courage. God not only knows about it, God has designed it. This is hard for some of you who do not have a biblical view of God. You do not see Him as sovereign and reigning. The more you study your Bible, the more you will realize He is sovereign and reigning. I like to say it this way, there's not one rogue molecule in the universe. God reigns. So, take courage. Don't be afraid. I'm coming to you. Right? This is the takeaway for us. Are you in a hard spot? Is this, you got a storm in your life? Jesus says, I'm coming to you. You're not alone. I bring divine power. I'm coming to you. Right? It's a beautiful lesson for us. So this basket lesson... These guys carrying away 12 basket, the baskets, you know, meaning, hey, as you minister, I'm just going to be your resource. As you give, as you minister, as you give, as you minister, I'm just going to keep giving. You're always going to have enough. You just fed 5,000, 10 or 15,000 uh, people with five loaves and two fish, and you're walking away with leftovers. The, the point is you'll always have enough when you're working for me. When you're my disciple, you'll always have what you need, right? That's the point of the baskets. So what's the point of the boats? Jesus is always coming to you. Always. He's always coming in a new way. Okay? He's always coming in a new way. So, two things had to happen for these guys to get in the middle of the storm. 
One, Jesus sent them on their way. And what was the second thing? What did they have to do? Obey. So, they obeyed God and they're in the storm. You know, I've heard this many times. People say, well, I'm obeying God. Why, why is this happening to me? Well, <laughs> He's coming to you. Joy is coming to you. You know, people think, well, I, I'm obeying God as best I can and, and I just I expect everything to go perfectly in my life. This is not, this is not, as C.S. Lewis says, this is not, you know, that's not real life. That's not how it works. God will bring you into the storm that you might come to know Him better. Some people say, is this what Christianity looks like? Yes, sometimes it looks like this. You obey and you're in the middle of some really hard stuff. All you got to do is read your Bible and read church history. And if you've been a Christian very long, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Prosperity gospel? Are you kidding me? Read your New Testament. Christians suffer everything that can be suffered on this planet. Up to and including martyrdom. We are not immune to the sufferings of mankind. Jesus Christ is not our rabbit's foot. He's not our lucky charm. He's not our genie in a bottle. And if that's the, the, the image you have of God in your mind, I'm going to call you, lovingly call you tonight to repent. Because you have an idol in your mind, a blasphemous idol in your mind. He's not your genie in a bottle. He's your God and your Savior. You know, if you get a genuine glimpse of Jesus Christ, you know, I, I heard a guy say it. I don't know who said it. Now you you either you either worship or you flee. No thinking man plays games with Jesus Christ. You fall on your face and you worship Him with all of your life or you flee from His presence until you see Him on the last day. The angry Lamb who comes in judgment. So, sometimes it's risky. You know, I, I, John Piper again, we have a book we don't have any left, but it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Don't waste your life. He, in that book, he says, obedience is risk. It's right to risk. For Jesus, not to do so is to waste your life. Invest your life in obedience, beloved. It doesn't matter what it costs. <laughs> I mean, what does Paul say? These momentary light afflictions, what? are bringing forth an eternal weight of value for an eternity. Temporal cost is nothing. Temporal cost is nothing for the believer who is in love with Jesus. Okay, I'm going to give you three, three great quotes that I love about this. It's quick, very quickly. Um, about you know obeying in the face of risk. First one, 2 Samuel chapter 10. 
Verse 12, Joab is surrounded. This is one of David's generals. He's surrounded by the enemy. It doesn't look good. This is what he says to his, his captains. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and our God. And may the Lord do what is good in His sight. Amen? I don't know what God's going to do here, but I'm going to be courageous, right? I'm going to believe. I'm going to obey. I'm going to be a courageous man of God. I leave the rest to the Lord. I love this, right? Is that how you're living your life? <laughs> right? Fearless! Fearless! I love it. Next quote. You guys know. Esther. In the book of Esther. Um, her people are going to be annihilated. She needs to go into the king. Well, it's a capital defense to walk into the king without being summoned. It's a capital offense. She could be killed. You know what she says. Esther 4.16 I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So what? If I pay the ultimate price in obedience, if I am killed trying to you know, be used of God, let it be so. You know, this is somebody who's not looking at the temporal. They're looking at the eternal. And I'm asking you, are you looking at the eternal? If you're not in the Word of God, if you're not sitting under the Word of God, you will be looking at the temporal. You'll be consumed with the temporal. It's all the media talks about. It's all the professors talk about. It's all your friends talk about. It's all that's on Facebook almost. Unless you've got a few pastors on there. It's temporal. It's passing away. You're killing yourself if you're immersing yourself habitually in the temporal. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what God says. Yeah. Somebody whistled at me. I don't know who it was. Okay, that's new. That's new in my preaching experience. Okay, last one. You guys know this. Daniel, chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar is going to throw them in the furnace if they don't bow down to the image. This is what they say. O God, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the blazing furnace and out of Your hand, O King. But even if He does not, don't you love this? All of them say this. It doesn't matter what God decides to do. I'm going to do what I know I should do, right? But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar, this is one of my favorite things to say to you, so you'll know how to respond. Those of you who've been around for a while. He throws three people in the fire. How many people does he see in the fire? Four people are in there. Oh! Jesus Christ has come to them. Just like He did the men on the Sea of Galilee. Nebuchadnezzar said, that fourth one is like a son of the gods. Yes, He is. He is. Jesus Christ. You guys know Hebrews 13.5. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Some of you have not started living like that. It's true. Like you can really obey the Lord with glad, reckless joy and expect Him to have your back. But I, it's what I told you last week. That's the big slide. Man, the big slide is the best slide. 
It's, where, it, it, it's, it's doing that thing that you must have God or you cannot do by yourself. And it's just fun. That big slide's fun with God. You guys know Isaiah 45.10, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but My loving kindness will never be removed from you. So back to John 6. Uh, John 6.19, here comes Jesus to His disciples. He's walking on the water. You can't stop God from coming to His people in the trial. And He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Sometimes it's risky to walk with God. Sometimes there is fear. I'll, be, I'll confess to you, I've been a Christian for 34 years now. Sometimes there's fear. But what does a, what does a, a true believer do with fear? We don't look at it. What do we look at? God. We refuse to look at the fear. Which, you know, you, if you just look at the fear, you're going to be full of fear. If you, just, if you just look at it, if you focus on that, you'll be full of fear. But you have to consciously turn and look at Christ Jesus, who is God, who does everything He pleases. Uh, yeah, so that's what we have to do. I told you last week, you can be a churchgoer without God. Anybody can show up for church. But you cannot be a disciple without God. You've got to have God. Or you can't do what He's going to call you to do if you're a Christian tonight. He's going to call you to do hard stuff. <laughs> he calls us to do hard stuff. He gets the glory, you get the joy. So, in the midst of the storm, Jesus says, do not be afraid. It is I. So two things happened when the disciples obeyed Jesus. They found themselves in the middle of the storm, but what else happened? Okay, I've already mentioned it several times. What happened? They, they found themselves in the middle of a storm. They obey, they obey God. They're in the middle of a storm. But what happens? What else happens? They obey God and then the miraculous happens, right? <laughs> the miraculous happens in obedience. Here comes God walking on the water. The miraculous happens in obedience. It's a lesson we learn over and over and over again as we yeah, study our Bibles. Again, last week, big God, big slide, big joy. I know how it is. We've got a really small group tonight. I get that. Some of you will not believe God like this. Some of you simply will never do it. I'm, I, I can't begin to understand all your reasons why. But what I want to say to you is you lose. You lose. Lay hold of the life that God has given you. Lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us and go with God. So what happens when they receive Him into the boat? They're glad. They receive Him into the boat. Matthew 14.33 And those who were in the boat 
worship saying, you are certainly the God, uh, the, the, you are God's Son. Now, through the midst of the trial, they've learned again He is divine. He is God's Son. Do you understand the point here? In the trial, you're going to learn more about God. You're going to come out of the trial loving and trusting God more. If you're His, you will. Obviously, the trial, sometimes people who are simply Christian in name only, they fall away. They just leave. We, we saw that in the parable of the soils. People, when it gets hot, they just go. They leave. Right? But the true believer comes out of the trial loving God more. So let me ask you, have you understood that Jesus is God's Son? You want to know how you under, if you've really understood that, you want, to, you want to know how? He will be your life. He will not be part of your life. He will be your life. You say, Jim, that's just for missionaries and pastors. No! It's for every true believer. He'll be your life. Every day you wake up, He'll be your life. And you'll be putting down the sin and you'll be picking up the righteousness of Christ and you'll be learning how to be a son or daughter of God. So are you pursuing Him? Are you hearing Him? Are you worshiping Him with your life? You remember what happened in Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar brought the guys out of the fire? You remember what happened, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, Who's a God like this? Who can save like their God saves? He says, he, put it, he issued a decree. Let no man speak against their God. I'll tear him limb from limb. He is God. What happens when you go through the trial and you make much of Jesus in it? What happens? The people around you see it. Some people come to faith through it. This is another thing your trial is. It's evangelism. <laughs> it's not for you to feel sorry for yourself and to wring your hands. I'm not saying we don't struggle. It's, it's okay to struggle. We all struggle. I, but I'm saying the Christian fights through the struggle. The Christian preaches to himself. The Christian hopes in God. The Christian remembers all the promises. And then the Christian makes much of Christ in it. And then unbelievers around us see it. And they go, wow, I wish I had that. How do I get that? And you tell them. You tell them the gospel. So, verses 23 to 22 to 25. Long story short, they follow Jesus. Okay, <laughs> there's a lot said there. Long story short, they follow Jesus. Verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you see signs or saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled." Again. He's refuting the prosperity gospel. These people are seeking Him, but not in a way He wants them to. It's not about Him. It's about the blessing. God hates this. This is demonic. It's blasphemous. It's an insult to God that you would want the blessing more than you would want Him. If you're guilty, I lovingly ask you to repent. I lovingly ask you. Now we have bells. We have whistles and bells and lots of cool things tonight. So, 
Jesus was, yeah, he was a really cool bling bling preacher because, oh, he gave you bread before you ever sent an offering. You know how it works. And you've got to send an offering. You've got to sow a seed of faith to get the blessing, right? I mean, you've got to send me money. If I'm a prosperity preacher, I say, well, you send me the offering and wah, bam, I'll give you a blessing. Or I'll make sure God gives you a blessing. You know, I'm, I'm always amazed that people believe this stuff. It's just simply not in the Bible. You, you have to be completely ignorant of Scripture to fall for these kinds of things. It's simply not true. So, God reveals He will not be used. John chapter 6 is one of the lessons of John chapter 6. He did not come to make you bread. He came to be your bread. I hope we understand that. So, verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. This is kind of the climax of the chapter. In other words, are you valuing that which is passing away, or are you valuing Jesus Christ. Are you like the 19th century expedition to the North Pole? Or are you free to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Beloved, this is the best invitation you will ever get. <laughs> to put down all the baggage and love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's an awesome thing. Jesus says, um, do not work for the food that perishes. And He says, work for the food which endures to eternal life, which I shall give to you. I hope you understand the metaphor. The bread is Jesus. He's going to say it all the way through the rest of the chapter. Verse 35, verse 41, verse 48, verse 51, verse 55. I am the bread. I am your life. This is all about the bread. This is all about eternal life. And let me read 28 and 29 and we'll be done. And we'll pick up here next week. And the multitude said therefore to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. I'll make one qualifying statement. If you've been around a while, you understand. You already know. This is not believing facts. That's not what Christianity is. It's not simply believing historical facts. Satan believes the facts. It's believing in such a way that Jesus is your bread. bread. He's your life. He's your greatest treasure. He is your preeminent pleasure. He is your most profound and deep and intimate joy. This is what belief means in the New Testament. Okay? Just want to make that clear. We'll pick up there next week and we'll expand on that. The balance of the chapter, Jesus is going to talk about some weighty stuff, man. He's going to talk about salvation. I know some of you are going to leave this week. Hope you'll at least listen to the podcast. It just gets bigger 
John 6 just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Let's pray together. 